Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. So hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It is my pleasure to be joined with Dr. Leslie Carter today. She is a clinical psychologist, speaker, and expert in how trauma, stress, and culture and digital technology impact the mind. She hosts the beautifully produced and very engaging podcast, The Nature of Nurture, which I love. Uh, Links to this will be below, where she talks about all of these issues. Dr. Leslie, what did I miss? Oh, man, you know, uh, nothing major. Thank you very much for your compliments on the podcast. That means a lot to me. I'm really going to lean on uh, Dr. Leslie's expertise. um, And I think this whole episode is really going to be talking about the role of therapy and, you know, where do people turn when uh, medications uh, don't help them? And so I think a fun way to actually start this and, and something I was talking to Dr. Leslie about uh, before we started this was actually to look at an old Zoloft commercial, which kind of talks about depression. So I'm going to, I'm going to pull that up so we can just have a watch of it and then, and then react to it. So let's, let's do that. You know, when you feel the weight of sadness, you may feel exhausted, hopeless, and anxious. Whatever you do, you feel lonely and don't enjoy the things you once loved. Things just don't feel like they used to. These are some symptoms of depression, a serious medical condition affecting over 20 million Americans. While the cause is unknown, depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain. Prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance. You just shouldn't have to feel this way anymore. Only your doctor can diagnose depression. Zoloft is not for everyone. People taking MAOIs or Pemazide shouldn't take Zoloft. Side effects may include dry mouth insomnia, sexual side effects, diarrhea, nausea, and sleepiness. Zoloft is not habit forming. Talk to your doctor about Zoloft, the number one prescribed brand of its kind. Zoloft, when you know more about what's wrong, you can help make it right. Wow. Okay. Um, that aged poorly. Uh, you know, so, so for me. Oh. Yes, that's one way to put it. Yeah. Yes, there's, there's so much in there. And um, I think, you know, I was just on Dr. Leslie's show and uh, I, I watch a lot of her podcasts and she talks, you know, very critically about how uh, society has been kind of led to think about depression and the cause and maybe how it leads people down, um, you know, the wrong path looking for answers. And I think, I mean, that's why I thought of this commercial would be a great place to start. Dr. Leslie, your, you know, your reaction to that. Oh, man, there is a little bit of a feeling of where to even begin. I mean, there were a couple of things that jumped out at me with that ad. You know, where do we start, right? And and one of them is just, um, you know, there's this little caveat in the ad that you could easily miss if maybe it's the first time you've ever listened to an ad like that where it says, the causes of depression are unknown, but they may be a result of, you know, this thing called the chemical imbalance. And those little caveats are actually a really big part of how those ads were ever able to get created in the first place. You have to sort of bracket it. You know, the United States is one of the only countries in the world that can do this direct to consumer advertising. And part of how the pharmaceutical companies got away with making ads like that is with these kind of little, you know, depression may be caused by a chemical imbalance. We don't really know, but here's the drug, you know, 
And one of the other things that really jumped out at me is this whole idea of only your doctor can diagnose depression, which is there's a this is a sort of a seven layer cake of of the problematic stuff here. But first of all, no one is more the expert on you than you. But the notion, you know, your doctor implies to people that it's actually their primary care physician that ought to be diagnosing their depression which is inherently super problematic. So I don't know, I'll, I'll pause so that I don't get too much on my soapbox, but- I want you on the soapbox. That's why I brought you on here. Cause I, <laughs> you know, um, talk to us why, why something that sounds innocuous like that, you know, talk to your doctor about depression. You know, if you're feeling blue, go and speak, speak to him. How can something like that end up being dangerous uh, for people? Yeah, it's a really good question and it's multifaceted. So- it was the case for a long time when I didn't fully understand how destructive antidepressant medication can be that I actually just thought it wasn't so much that the prescription in itself was, you know, so damaging or so problematic, but it just was the message that it gave people that if they were struggling in some way, that something was wrong with their brain. Now, I've come to realize the situation is far more complicated than what I originally thought, but I think that we're in really dangerous territory when we give people the impression that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance or a brain disease of some kind, because it keeps people from doing a different kind of searching. You know, people people stop looking for a better answer um, when that's the answer that they get and that's the answer that they believe. And to sort of zoom out for a moment here to try to explain myself a little further, you know, I think that People can be depressed for lots of reasons. People can be depressed because of something that happened in their childhoods that is continuing to gnaw at them. They might not even really consciously remember what that thing is. I think especially when we're given the message that depression is caused by a, a chemical imbalance, we're that much more apt to dismiss those kinds of early childhood experiences as the thing that could be generating our distress. But there also are a lot of things that can happen in our adult lives that make us depressed. You know, the economic circumstances of most Americans is pretty harrowing. That is enough of a reason to feel depressed. So what happens is that I think when people are led to believe that their depression is biochemical, they stop looking for different and I think better solutions to their problems. They might not go to therapy because they just think they have a brain disease. They might not. Um, so, for example, loneliness is a huge generator of depression for a lot of people. A really solid antidote to feeling depressed is kind of connecting in your relationships. And if you don't have them, going out and finding some. People are less apt to do that if they're told that the problem is inside of them and that the problem is wrong, something that's wrong with their brain. I'm really excited to have you weigh in on this because I want a psychologist's perspective on this. There's something about being told that your problems are due to a chemical imbalance that I think can be appealing to people for different ways. Um, sometimes it's e maybe an easier explanation. It's a less, um, trying to think of the right word, like maybe less offensive or, or something like that. That's probably it not the right way of saying the idea it. That it's not your fault, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that it's not your fault. It's not your family's fault. And that, mm. um, and 
I would just like your whole download on how the, yeah, on how something like that can actually, you know, people can cling to that and, and maybe actually even get quite upset if it's, uh, if it's challenged. Uh, it's such a good question. And I have really? so much to say about this. So I think there's in my mind, two primary things that load into this. One is on an individual's level, it may be comforting to hear that your depression or any amount of kind of psychic distress that you're experiencing, that it's biological in nature because it makes um, the solution a little simpler, right? We, in the United States, for example, there's a big culture of people just wanting to take a pill. It's it's easier than quote unquote doing the work. And we'll get into what I mean by that a little later. But I think for some people it's, it's easier, um, it, quite literally easier in the sense that it takes less effort. But there's this bigger, broader issue of stigma. <clears throat> and this is something that I have thought about for a very long time now because my entire career has been arguably in my mind um, devoted to decreasing stigma in mental health. And I think that there are a lot of well-intentioned people that believe that part of how you destigmatize mental health issues is by putting them kind of on par with physical distress. And, and it's, you know, the, the very word parody is something that is big, even in terms of trying to get insurance to, um, to cover mental health issues, mm -hmm. right? We, we want to think that these two things are comparable. And I think that they are comparable in the sense that our, our mental health is just as important as our physical health. Our, you know, the brain is the most complex organ in the body. It needs to be covered in every way that it can be. But some really interesting studies have been done around whether it actually works to decrease stigma for the general public to believe that our mental health experiences are a result of biology. And interestingly, there's this sort of irony around this where it doesn't actually work to decrease stigma. Have you ever had experiences where someone was actually maybe, I don't know, quite defensive if you challenge, challenge them in, in your one-on-one -on -one work about it, um, where you try and kind of, you know, go deeper, maybe not, maybe people are coming to you because they're especially looking for more psychological explanations um, where they're just, you know, maybe shut down about it and they just go, no, you know, it doesn't seem to be coming from anywhere. This is just the way I am and the way my family is. Have, have you ever run into that uh, on I've, a one-on-one -on -one basis? I've never yeah. experienced anyone that was super defensive or protective about it. And there might be a self-selecting issue there, but I have experienced instances where it's just taken a little bit of work and a little bit of doing to help someone to see that, in fact, something else is happening. You know, I have had people come to me where it could just be the mm -hmm. very first session. Mm -hmm. And as they're telling me about themselves, you know, one of the things that comes up is that maybe they already take an antidepressant or something like that. And they might say, you know, I sort of struggle with depression and they'll say something that sort of suggests that it's inborn or biological. And I am very gentle in my approach to time like this because I'm not interested in being right for the sake of being right. But I do feel like 
really big part of my job is to help people to see how that is not the whole truth of their experience. I've never, um, and I actually really truly believe I can say this in all honesty, I have never not been successful in that regard because I think Mm -hmm. that part of the point of being in therapy is that once you start to actually connect dots and help someone to see how their lived experience is contributing to their felt sense of what it means to be alive, really quickly people start to come around and it's like, oh, there's something else has been happening this whole time. So I've never experienced, you know, a sort of a staunch defensiveness. I have, on the contrary, had several people show up in my office very upset because the doctors, clinicians, mostly medical, you know, mostly medical doctors, their general primary care physician, that kind of thing has already given them the impression that they think they have a chemical imbalance. A lot of times people will come to me after Mm -hmm. their doctor has already prescribed an antidepressant and they're really upset about it because they can sort of feel it in their bones that their, their feelings that everything is a response to something that they've lived through. Um, so that to me is an example of where I think a lot of primary care physicians and general practitioners can be really misled and in writing prescriptions for antidepressants without mm-hmm. any kind of referral to mental health follow-up care, not starting with something else like therapy. Some people are really upset about it. Yeah. And I know you've spoken about this, about how, you know, the primary care office is probably just about the worst place that you could go to get uh, if you wanted a comprehensive understanding for why you're sad, you know, one, they don't have the training to do it to, you know, you, maybe you get 10 minutes of FaceTime uh, there. Um, and so, you know, given all of that, I'm, I'm going to segue now and I'd like you just to give us, you know, a big overview of depression and anxiety from your perch, you know, from people who walk through the door and, like, what are you seeing? Like, what, what are the major causes that are making people upset? It's such a good question. And I, I definitely have to go, each thing is an individual case with, you know, depression, anxiety. They're, they are, even though they go together sometimes, they're such different experiences. Um, so we'll start with depression for a moment. Going back to what I was saying before, there are lots of reasons why a person can struggle with depression whether it's um, sort of a low-grade kind of thing or even a major depression. Uh, one of the things that I want to draw everybody's attention to, and this is, can be in some ways, I think, the hardest piece of this to talk about, is that a lot of times people are struggling with depression because of early childhood traumas that just kind of got absorbed into the life story, right? Like, I think we live in a world where people have a very complex understanding of or sort of reaction to the word trauma because a lot of people think that it has to be a big, discreet, obvious trauma, like a, you know, like someone going to war in order for something to qualify as trauma. I think that the human condition is inherently traumatizing and for a lot of children, because there is literally no such thing as the perfect parent doesn't exist Children can oftentimes experience certain things in their relationship with their caregivers as um, 
a form of trauma that can kind of become like death by a thousand cuts, you know, like very mundane forms of neglect can be experienced to a developing mind as traumatic. So if you, if we sort of stick with this example for a moment and later I, I want to zoom out and get a bit societal, but if we sort of stick with this for a moment, it's interesting to think that people can grow up to feel like something is wrong that they can't put their finger on. And it's really easy to think that the, the origin must be biological because part of the experience of being alive is to not know precisely what it is that ails us. You know, the, the, the psyche is built to keep certain things from us, like certain uncomfortable truths. And some of those uncomfortable truths can even just be, let's say, like an anger that you have towards a parent that you also really love. You know, it's, I think something that I'll interrupt myself and say really quickly is that I think that one of the misunderstandings of any high quality therapy is that you're going to go in and like bash your parents, right? It's all these Freudian jokes of like, if it's not one thing, it's your mother, you know? And meanwhile, mm -hmm. I think that actually when we're really doing good work, we can also start to have a lot of compassion for our parents because they also received imperfect parenting and we're moving into the territory of what a clinician like me calls the intergenerational transmission of trauma, right? That it's it this whole business of being human is not easy. It's not easy to parent. It's not easy to be parented. Like we live in a world where nothing is perfect. So all these like tiny little things can go wrong. I was wondering if there's any uh, clinical stories that, that you could share, mm -hmm. you know, just of how, you know, just vague outlines of, of things like this, how how you might see them impact someone's, you know, relationships and just, just to give the audience a sense of how, you know, things that you learn from your parent parents or how they, um, how they behave around you might turn up in maladaptive behaviors and things like that, just to kind of weave the, you know, the, the trauma into present day depression and anxiety. Yeah. <clears throat> so obviously being vague enough to be very mindful of, of protecting yep. identifying information. I can think of um, a young man that I've worked with for a long time now who serves as a really good example to me of someone who, when he first came to me, was struggling with feeling depressed and had already been put on an antidepressant, was convinced the problem was biological. And at the time, this was several years ago now, he was... Uh, in a very serious relationship with a woman that he lived with and that I think, you know, he loved very much in a lot of ways. They were, the relationship was very close and very enmeshed, but it didn't take much doing before I started to realize that actually the relationship was pretty dysfunctional in a lot of ways. Um, he wasn't being treated very well by his partner. And mm -hmm. interestingly enough, the ways in which he wasn't being treated very well really mimicked some of the things that had happened in his early childhood with his parents. And to him, it wasn't rocket science that the, the, his um, home environment was not ideal in the sense that I think he viewed his relationship with his parents as being pretty dysfunctional in a lot of ways. But nonetheless, he still thought the depression was sort of in his brain, I think, because we live in a culture that makes people feel that way, right? 
So as we started you know, doing the work and I was getting to know him and reflecting things back to him, I helped him to see a couple different things that made a huge difference in his life. Mm-hmm. One was that part of what his relationship with his parents included when he was young was a lot of what we can legitimately call emotional and psychological abuse. Like they just had a way of speaking to him that really took a toll on his self-esteem. Like it just, the, the environment wasn't very warm. It wasn't very loving. And he was made to feel, I think in a lot of ways growing up, like <clears throat> he had to be the one to kind of take care of everything for himself. The more complicated piece in a way, and this can be a really painful part of sort of doing the work in therapy, was slowly but surely he started to realize that there were some things happening in his relationship with his partner that were sort of equally not ideal. She was sort of speaking to him in ways that weren't always kind. And there just were a lot of patterns in the relationship that I don't really want to elaborate on that I just don't Mm -hmm. think were really not healthy. But the thing that happened for him that was, I mean, it's amazing. I'm still working with this person. So it's amazing when we talk about this now. It took a lot of courage for him to realize that he needed to leave this relationship ultimately. But then he did. He's been now out of this relationship for at least a year. I'd say probably closer to two years. And he has these moments sometimes where every once in a while, he just feels the need to kind of like give himself a high five for the fact that he got out of this relationship that I think Mm -hmm. for a while he thought was good just because he loved her. And, you know, I mean, I think there were a lot of reasons why he sort of thought the relationship was good enough, but it took getting out of it for him to sort of see like, oh, no wonder, can I curse on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, go for (laughs) it. (laughs) What I was about to say is like, no wonder I felt like shit, you know, like he just sort of felt like shit a lot of the time. And, you know, he, he uh, has some things he sort of continues to struggle with today, which is why we continue to work with each other and that kind of thing. But I mean, there is a night and day difference from the person that I see sitting in front of me these days from the person that came into my office a couple of years ago now feeling like his, his, depression must have been caused by a chemical imbalance because why else would he feel so bad? Yeah. I, I'm really glad you, you gave a story because I, what I want people to hear when they listen to, to this is, is how complicated understanding why people can have depression and anxiety can be. Yeah. It could be a big discrete trauma, but it could also be, um, uh, you know, being kind of put down by your family or, or maybe they're, you know, maybe they're very uh, emotionless and, you know, very harsh. And then you take that on and you think that's normal. And then it plays out in your relationships later on that, you know, everyone's so sensitive and they should just be a bit more thick skinned like you, because that's normal. And, you know, how, how that ends up, you know, affecting you in your career when you, you know, you can't play nice from the sandbox or how it affects you in your relationships and just the different ways, um, you know, what you grow up around can end up manifesting, uh, in your life, which you, you won't even realize cause it'll just seem, you know, like, like, like water is for fish. I mean, it's just a, a part of who you are and, and just feels innate. And so it's well put. I, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I love that you, um, that you brought that up. And so 
let's talk now a little bit about um, how do you help people? Um, so, I mean, we're going to juxtapose the two things, you know, going in and seeing a doctor and being told you have a chemical imbalance to what do you do when, when someone walks in the door and, and, and they're depressed? What, what does that whole process look like for, for, you know, for being like, Hey, how can I help you? That whole thing. No, no, no. It's such a good question. And it's so funny. I don't, I don't mean to say that every time you ask me a question, but you're asking me a lot of good yeah. questions. And I, there are some things that I can share with people that I think will be very helpful outside of the context of therapy. There are certain things that I think, Bill, some things that I've learned in the process of, of becoming and being a therapist that I think have a lot of outside of the therapy room utility. So I'll, I'll try to make this really useful for people. But, you know, in the very beginning, when I'm first working with somebody new, I, I really only have two jobs in my mind. One is to help them to feel as comfortable as I can, because I know the whole process of going to therapy can be very uncomfortable can be very scary for a lot of people. So it's always my, my intention to, um, to, to take as much of the fear out of it as I possibly can. And I get super curious because in my mind and in my experience, there are no two people on the face of this planet that have had the exact same experience. So even if I have two separate people coming into my office, not at the same time, but let's say back-to-back appointments, two people showing up saying that they feel quote-unquote depressed. I want to know what they mean by that word, right? What does that word even mean to you? What are you actually feeling? Because the differences can be enormous. One person can be struggling getting out of bed in the morning and another person can be having, you know, maybe there's a lot of internal chatter, but it, you know, just, you can, that, that a word that big can mean wildly different things to different people. Mm-hmm. So, It's just my intention to get curious. But a lot of what I am looking to understand is that person at the level of their relationships, past and present, right? Like, what is the landscape of a person's relationships like now? Who are the key people in their lives? Uh, Who are the most important figures? Do they have close relationships? And just historically, how have they experienced being in relationship with other people? So anything that they remember about what it was like to have their parents as parents when they were kids, you know, did they have siblings? And if so, did they get along with their siblings? And a lot of what I am looking to understand as deeply as I can, and this is where, so I'm going to say something that, um, is very specific to therapy in the sense that you have to be really trained, I think, to do this. And then I'm going to give the thing that I think will be helpful for other people. But part of what I'm really looking to understand is what that person appears to believe to be true about themselves or about life or about um, how they exist in relationships that usually goes back to its origin story. Right. So, um, If I use an example for a moment, let's imagine that somebody is uh, single or dating or in and out of romantic relationships 
And it starts to become clear that they chronically have the feeling of being disappointed. You know, they get disappointed over and over and over again. You know, I want to know what their earliest experiences of being disappointed in relationship were. Like it's the stuff never comes from nowhere. So that's the more, you know, I'm not necessarily going to be able to impart to the, um, to a lot of people who are listening to this right now, exactly how to do that work. Cause I went to school for forever and all of that stuff. But one of the things that I'm always aware of whenever I'm working with people is that the mere experience of being listened to, truly listened to by someone who is being curious about you is for most people, it's a refreshing experience. And for a lot of people, it is so different than anything they've ever experienced before that it's like giving water to a very thirsty plant. I think that one of the things that makes life very hard for, I want to say almost everybody, like it's it's so pervasive that it's hard for a lot of people is that we generally speaking live in a world where our collective EQ is pretty low. So people frequently have the experience of, um, you know, looking for some, look, you know, going to a friend, looking for advice, looking for help with something. And, you know, they're given bad advice or the person tells them to just get over it. Or before mm-hmm. they're even done speaking, the other person is looking for their turn to talk. You know, there's just, um, I think if I were to give maybe the the best example that I could give from these days, because it's, it's really pervasive and it's also disturbing. It's like the equivalent of going to somebody and looking for their ear, but like they're half on their phone, half the time, they're not really listening to you. You know, like we just, we live in a world where a lot of people are very bad listeners. So the mere act of being listened to and sort of being attended to in that way is in itself therapeutic. And, um, and I really don't say that lightly because when you carry that experience through, like if a person keeps going to therapy and they keep having the experience of being listened to in this very deep, curious, non-judgmental way, they start to get what we call a corrective emotional experience. They start to feel themselves reflected in another in a whole new way where they get to feel um, like their thoughts and feelings and experiences are interesting to someone or um, it's I'll, I'll pause here and let you kind of maybe jump in with a reflection or a I'm follow-up gonna, question, but it's, gonna, it's, it's, it's yeah. can be so powerful. Yeah. So, I'm going to do a recap and then a, um, a follow-up question. So what I, I mean, what I was thinking when you were talking about that was that there's really a, uh, maybe I'll say an exposure component, um, or like a practicing component to being in therapy where maybe, maybe you're not a good listener or, or maybe, you know, you've never seen anything like that happening before and that by, you know, going through that, you learn those skills and maybe you even might decide that you want someone, you know, that, that has those things, or you might want to work with your spouse to, to, to do more of that. So there's this kind of, you know, this, um, practicing of, of doing that. Oh, this is how relationships work. 
Yeah. But the larger question that I wanted to ask was, you know, I asked, you know, what, how do you help people? You know, you didn't start with like, well, I'll ask them what's upset or, you know, you know, you know, where they want to go. You went straight to relationships. You said, you know, that, and, and so I thought that was, that was telling why the focus on relationships, why, yeah, tell us about that. What, what is it about relationships that that's like the thing that you zero in on when, when someone walks in the door and they're upset? Ah, well now we're at my favorite question. Yes. So one of the things that I find myself thinking about again and again, noticing again and again in the work that I do, because it never ceases to amaze me, is that, you know, human beings are, we are an unbelievably social species. We are arguably the most social species on the face of the planet. If I were working with starfish, I probably wouldn't really care about the quality of their relationships. But human beings are nothing without the relationships that exist in their lives. And a big part of that has to do with how, for how long we are dependent on our primary caregivers as children. It's really wild when you think about it, because in most of the animal kingdom, when animals give birth to their offspring, you know, imagine if if you've ever seen like a giraffe give birth, you know, the baby giraffe comes out and just runs away, basically, you know, human beings are dependent on their caregivers far longer than any other animal is. And during that period of time, during our most formative years, which in my mind are the first three to four years of age, we are kind of learning everything from the people that we're in proximity to. So um, the word for this, you know, there's a word attachment people think about a lot. I think actually an even more important word almost arguably is the word attunement, which is that, you know, if you have ever, for anyone who's listening, if you've ever had an infant, played with an infant, you know, you can sort of make faces at them. They make faces back at you and that kind of thing. As early as 40 minutes after birth, if you stick your tongue out at at, at a newborn baby infant, they'll stick their tongue back out at you because we are hyper wired to scan one another's faces for safety and belonging. And so much of the process of becoming who we are has to do with the way that people, namely our primary caregivers, but this is really anybody that's in our, what I'll call our social orbit, how those people treat us, respond to us. Human children, especially for the first three to four years of life, are sponges for all of the experiences that they're having. In the same way that we are learning to speak, learning to walk, We're learning what we can expect from other people and how they'll relate to us. So if I can maybe go a little bit deeper and just sort of give an example. When children learn that the key figures in their lives when they're young are safe, part of what it teaches them is that like the world is safe. But if you have a parent in your life, um, and this is, sort of true for all of us on some level it's pretty hard to escape but we have ways of adapting to our caregivers because we have to right like at a deep intrinsic level children know that like their next meal basically is dependent upon these very powerful people approving of them 
So a lot of what happens in these early days is stuff that is originally adaptive, even if later it becomes maladaptive, because we have to cope with the environments that we're in. Is all of this, maybe let me just feel free to steer me, but my brain gets really excited when I talk about this stuff. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're doing, you're doing great. And, um, I, I guess the, the focusing question here would be from things that come through your door and, and or maybe the doors of your colleagues out there, yeah. how much of it do you think boils down to relationships? I would say almost all of it. And when I, when I think about what doesn't um, fit into this category, I think we have to be aware as clinicians or as we're talking about this stuff, about the, the role that a person's economic circumstances can play in things like stress and that kind of stuff, you know, in a hyper-capitalist country like the United States, where everybody really is left to fend for themselves in a lot of ways, there are there are adult stressors, and even for just for children too, I'm sort of thinking about the notion of an ACE score, right? Like things related to poverty can be really impactful. And I think that uh, there are a lot of other environmental factors like what we eat, um, exposure to toxins, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's not, it's not all relationships, but relationships are most of it. Yeah. And so I guess, I mean, it sounds like the the work that you do is really complicated and it takes a long time. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I mean, it's the goal eventually that they, they, they leave you, you know, they, they've, they've learned the skills and, you know, they don't need the pills and they don't need Dr. Leslie anymore. And they and they kind of Hopefully. move on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I, I'm going to ask you some questions to just get you to reflect on how um, your colleagues are doing. And I, I'm going to say this in a broader sense, you know, not just licensed uh, psychotherapists, but you know the the talk therapists out there. You know, sure. all of them. How, how are how are we doing? You know, how how are they doing right now in in helping people with depression and anxiety from from your perspective? So fascinating because if I zoom out and I think about the entire industry, for lack of a better word, (laughs) I think a lot of it is really problematic. You know, I think that there are, you know, I just kind of can't help but think about the role that CBT plays in all of this because it just kind of maybe makes some things clear for people. I am not a cognitive behavioral therapist. I'm guessing that a lot of people have at least heard that phrase because it's really buzzy, right? And what a lot of people don't know about the notion of quote unquote cognitive behavioral therapy is that it is super duper well known, partially because it has been really well marketed, you know, oftentimes to people as the empirically validated form of therapy. A lot of that is just hogwash. Um, you know, they were the first, uh, was the first type of therapy to submit itself to empirical validation. But apart from that, it doesn't, doesn't have much of a leg to stand on. And part of what's really problematic about it is that in a world with managed care and where we're looking for insurance reimbursements, 
I think a lot of people, when they go to get any kind of mental health treatment in the United States, if they try to go through their insurer and that kind of stuff, they're either going to get a prescription or they're going to get, you know, a 12 session time limited form mm-hmm. of psychotherapy that is going to be probably a manualized CBT or somebody's literally using a manual. And, you know, it's really interesting. There are studies that show, and I believe this strongly to be true, that when CBT helps people, something like 90% of the efficacy can just be attributed to like the kindness of the therapist, even when they're using a manual, right? That it's the number one uh, kind of agent of change in any psychotherapy is the relationship between therapist and patient, so to speak, client. And so even in CBT, when CBT is working, what is actually working is the non-manualized elements of it. It's someone caring enough to ask you questions or trying to help. But one of the problems of CBT is that, and it's, I don't mean to totally and completely bash it. I mean, there are some, there are some tools in that toolbox that I'll borrow from periodically, but in its essence, It's not super curious because it's just looking to kind of create behavioral change. Um, Even if the behavior is the thought, which is a very weird thing, you know, Hmm. weird way of thinking about human behavior. But, you know, there's technically thinking as a behavior, especially in this sort of cognitive behavioral world. And uh, it's it's really I think in that model, it often serves to make people feel wrong. You know, we're looking to change thought distortions rather than to be curious about where where those thoughts come from to begin with. Tell me about the impact of that. You know, maybe an example of uh, uh, changing a thought disturbance versus understanding it, how that could lead someone down two different paths. Oh, um, let me think about this for a second. It's so funny. It's been so long since I've had much exposure to the tools of CBT that it might be hard for me to think off the top of my head, like what they would do, like what would a, what it, what would a CBT therapist do mm-hmm. in the face of something, but. Yeah. Um, well, if you can't think of, I'll, I'll give you a moment to think if uh, uh, about it, but if nothing comes to mind, I'll ask you some follow-up questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's maybe go for yeah something else yeah okay. <laughs> I'm like, pass so, next please yeah. <laughs> yeah no worries yeah one of the things that i worry about with cbt and again you know i'm i've done limited cbt in my training is i don't know i i you know with with something that's short like that i i also walked away with the impression that it was just like oh just you know you know, change how you, you know, just change how you feel about your anxiety. Okay. You're having anxious thoughts, you know, we'll learn some techniques so you can kind of soothe those anxious thoughts rather than maybe it being more directed at, at the causes, you know? Okay. So, you know, why do you have anxious thoughts? What's, what's going on? You know, something more like, um, you know, deeper, you know, a lot of people could have anxious thoughts because they're in terrible relationships or they're feeling like, you know, the job that they're doing at the moment is, is not really at the level where they, they would be happy. And I guess the impression I got with CBT, and this may be wrong, is it was that it, 
it doesn't really go deep like that into to some of these more complicated things. It's like, oh, this is how we're going to, you know, just, you know, talk away the anxiety or rash, you know, so, something like that. I don't know. Is that... Yeah, just, I, would, I, I agree. I would say yeah. that it's it's not very deep. It's not very yeah. curious. And it has a way of making people's thoughts and feelings wrong <clears throat> as opposed to trying to understand them in context. And I, I think what I'll add here, just in case there are other, what I'm always aware of at a time like this is that there could be a CBT-oriented therapist out there listening to this that wants to pick a fight with me. So I will just go one step further and say, I think the thing that feels most true to me about this stuff is that um, what the studies show is that you can experience some degree of progress after, let's say, 12 sessions, but that the gains don't last. When you do long-term uh, follow-up studies with CBT, what you see is that people tend to kind of revert to the mean or if they're anxious about one thing and you make some headway on that, next thing you know, a year later, they're anxious about something else. And I do think that, you know, we live in a world where not everybody is going to be able to experience a, a deep exploratory form of psychotherapy. It can be cost prohibitive for a lot of people. I understand why insurance companies don't want to pay for it. But if we were to talk about cost-effective models, something that I think can be extremely effective and is often underutilized is group therapy. Group, group therapy, because of what I was saying before about the power of relationships, a lot of the um, benefit that people get from a one-on-one -on -one therapist in that deeper form of therapy people can get from a small group of people when they're, you know, let's say eight eight people and a facilitator or something like that. It's a model. I'm not here to sing Kaiser's praises because I think there's a big, uh, Kaiser has a lot of problems, but I used to, I did my pre-doctoral residency at a Kaiser hospital. And I think one of its strengths is that they rely heavily on the, on the model of group psychotherapy. And it's a more cost-effective way to bring what can be a really high quality form of therapy to more people. You know, cost effective, it makes me feel, you know, I think about, um, you know, the rates of mental health in the US and how they go higher and there seems to be more and more scripts every single year. And it's like, I mean, the most cost effective thing is actually figuring out what the root causes of the problem, you know, whether that's some kind of maladaptive traits that they've developed from childhood trauma or or, you know, there's some poverty going on and we need to to help in whatever ways we can, or maybe it's a dietary issue as well. Um, and so it's, I mean, if you if you can address the, the root cause, I mean, that should probably be cheaper for the insurance company in the long run, because if, if you're just running someone through, you know, CBT sessions and, you know, amp, you know, higher and higher doses of medications without kind of fixing things, then- <laughs> it's 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 very costly and I, I guess I worry about that you know that that you know with the DSM coming in and just being like okay you know five out of nine symptoms you have depression that we've moved away from uh, being professionals that focus on root causes you know why you know what is the what is the part that that's not really serving them and so yeah I mean that's the thing that, that bothers me a little bit about CBT I I feel like it, maybe it's not, like you said, curious uh, as as to to really getting at the root causes and 
and maybe being more flexible. I, I don't think all problems can be just solved with, uh, you know, what, what's in the CBT uh, t- toolkit. You know, there's some, there's a lot of other solutions to things. Yeah, I, yeah. I absolutely yeah. agree with you. And I think the one thing that I would say to push back a tiny, tiny bit, Please. but I think it's good news for everybody involved is that I think that getting to the root cause of things is always the best thing if you can do it. But there is a way that people can experience sort of here and now healing that doesn't always necessarily get to the root cause. Um, The phrase that I used before is the notion of a corrective emotional experience. So for example, if a person had a parent that was untrustworthy. One of the ways that that person, and let's say, for example, that created a certain, um, uh, well, almost a form of like agita, not really knowing whether you can trust people in general, right? Because you had this untrustworthy parent. One of the ways that you can heal a wound like that is by having a reparative relationship with another person that is trustworthy. And one of the things that's really funny about this is that you can have a healing curative experience like that and technically never know that the original problem you were looking Mm. to solve was having had this untrustworthy experience to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's really beautiful about this is that human beings do this to each other all the time without realizing what they're doing. Right. We can have curative relational experiences with the people in our lives that are not clinicians. And I'm not, I mean, I think therapy is great. I think everybody should go. But one of the reasons why I'm saying this right now is because I think that people can have really healing experiences in a group therapy context. They don't even necessarily need to know what's being healed. But if their experiences prior were, let's say they have a really negative self-concept from previous life experiences, they just feel like people don't like them. No one ever listens to them. No one cares what they have to say. And then they go into a well-led group therapy experience and the other members of the group treat them with curiosity and interest and care what they have to say. They will emerge whenever they're done with that group therapy experience, having experienced something very healing, even if they never actually knew what it was that was wrong to begin yeah. with. Well, yeah, well put. Um, I, lo- I mean, I love groups. I, I did a group in residency and I thought that was a really interesting experience. Um, I want to, um, I'm going to segue to another topic of discussion, sure. which is, yeah. uh, You've been outspoken about not thinking that antidepressants are all that, and you know, and might be quite detrimental. Um, you're quite unique in that respect. I, I, I don't yeah. think I know many therapists. I mean, I know some uh, out there who've written books and things like that, but it's definitely not mainstream. What's going on there? You know, why isn't there more talk um, among our, um, you know, our, our talk therapy colleagues out there who I would always, ex- you know, I, I might suspect that they are more, you know, upset with things like the DSM and how it's reducing people down to 
kind of these simplistic categories and, you know, just, you know, the focus on medication and not really, I, I guess, helping people in the way that I would think that they deserve to be helped. But I don't feel like there's a lot of criticism of this very dominant medical model of um, depression and anxiety going on. What, what's the deal? I, I'd love your thoughts on on that. I think it's really hard to say. Um, I think it's possible that a couple different things are happening. One is that I think that there are a lot of therapists out there that believe what I believe, but they don't have a platform for getting that message out into the world. Like they might talk about this with their colleagues. Yeah, I have I have plenty of colleagues that I've spoken to over the years that believe the same thing that I believe, but they're not out in the world broadcasting it because they just don't have a platform to do that on. I think if there's anything that maybe makes me more unusual, uh, the thing that really sort of sets me apart from some of my colleagues, and I think that this is, you know, we could uh, we could be asking you the same question, Joseph, about like what fuels you and when and why you do what you do. But well, my, my, mine's the, like a little different though because we get fed the Kool Aid. You know, it's just like uh, you know because and you know and our and our work like. You, you might even say like our livelihoods depend on believing it in a way, yeah. you know, that, you know, what we've been trained to do is the right way and the good way. And like, maybe we're even defensive a little bit because we've been, you know, putting people on medications for, you know, decades. But then I think about the therapist and I'm just like, you know, a lot of your threat, your, you know, the, the, the trade is understanding people and helping them. And then I'm like, so, I guess maybe it could be, I'm like, you know, why isn't it more, why aren't they saying like, hey, we don't, you know, we don't agree with, with, you know, with what you guys are doing to people because, you know, we believe what we're doing um, is probably the better solution for people in the long run. You know, we know about the dependence and the side effects and the overuse of these medications and how the family med doctors are just doling them out. We're seeing these people in our practice go through withdrawal and have complications <laughs> So I always was just like, huh. But then at the same time, you know, I've seen it before. You know, I worked at a big academic institution. I've seen therapists and psychiatrists work side by side. There's also seems to be a big element of, you know, playing nice in the sandbox, being a team player. It's like, you, you know, you're not going to criticize your colleagues uh, because, you know, you're not going to be very popular. So I think there's a peer pressure element to it that I see. But I want, I want your thoughts on that. Yeah, I definitely have yeah. more that I I have more that I can add no. here, and it's really interesting because yeah. I do wonder if there are some therapists that do have at least a little bit more of a platform because Lord knows with social media and everything these days, there are far more people that are just out in the world saying what they think that maybe don't bring up antidepressants because they don't want anyone to feel bad or they don't want to make anyone wrong or they maybe don't want to go up against the structures, sort of the powers that are bigger than them. You know, there might be a little bit of a, a fear factor and that kind of thing. I really can't say. All I can say for myself, so I'll share something with you that I have never revealed publicly before, but I'm perfectly mm -hmm. happy to do it right now. So I am a 
survivor of of a very complicated childhood environment. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to be vague about certain details because it's not my intention to sort of throw anybody under the bus. But there was an experience that I had in my childhood that I would call emotionally abusive. And as a result of experiencing that emotional abuse, when I was effectively, um, you know, displaying the symptoms of a, of a kid that was, uh, that had been emotionally abused, my father and my stepmother took me to a psychiatrist. And in 15 minutes, that person put me on Prozac. So I was on Prozac mm-hmm. for six months when I was like 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And after taking it for somewhere between three and six months, but I've always remembered this as being about six months, I knew in my bones that I didn't have a chemical imbalance. I was just like, why, why is someone giving me a pill? I know what's happening in my house. And mm-hmm. so I threw the prescription out, didn't bring it up with anyone. Interestingly enough, my, my father and my stepmother never like followed up with me to make sure that I was taking the drugs. So I think once I decided for myself that I didn't want to take them and threw them out, it was sort of a non-issue. But I never forgot that experience, first of all, as something that uh, was really harmful for me. You know, there was a, there was a point in my life when someone took me to a clinician that could have been curious and asked questions and maybe could have advocated for me. And instead, I was put on a drug. But the next thing that happened, not literally the very next thing, but the next major thing that happened in my life that was a total blessing was I went to college. And as I told you in our pre-interview from from when I interviewed you for my podcast, one of my professors in grad school was Dr. Gary Greenberg, who's the author mm-hmm. of books like Manufacturing Depression and The Book of Woe. And uh, so I got to learn from him. And when I was getting a BA in psychology, he was my primary uh, sort of academic, <clears throat> excuse me, authority figure. And I learned a lot about sort of how bad the experience was that Mm -hmm. I had had. I think it helped contextualize things for me. And so on a private level, that is certainly a big piece of what fuels me. Yeah. It's, I mean, I I think it's just so bad. It's like, you know, your parents, uh, dad and stepmom, obviously Mm -hmm. worried about you, don't don't know what to do, want to help you. They go, ah. I better go take her to the doctor like the Zoloft commercial says or, you know, you know, take her to the professionals, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll know what to do. And then instead of really making much of an effort to understand you, it's like, how can we sort of convey a belt, you know, young Leslie out of here like pretty quickly, you know, we'll just put her on the Prozac, see you in a couple of months. It's so like not the care that anyone would want for their child, you know, or anyone that they love. Um, and we've normalized it. Yeah, unless they wanted that kid to get with the program, right? You know, yeah. I think that there's a certain amount of, um, I think that you are right in many, many ways. That I mean, first of all, it's, you know, I absolutely agree that the whole situation was super messed up, just super, super messed up. But I think that sometimes... There is a desire to make a problem go away. And oh, sometimes shit. it yeah. seems like that's the easiest way to make a problem go away. Yeah. That's like a whole nother element to it uh, of just like, 
Leslie's the problem, you know, <laughs> she, she needs, she needs the fixing and, um, nothing to see here. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I bet that happens all, all over the place. I mean, I could see that happening in abusive relationships and, and, and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Okay. So I get that, that maybe that, like you said, is another element that drives you to be a bit more outspoken about it. Um, so segueing again now um sure for people out there who are coming off medications maybe they've never had therapists before or they've never done you know talk therapy they've just you know seen doctors and gotten various medications they're coming off now but in many cases the problems that led to them being on the meds are still there maybe they've developed some new ones just from the compounding life problems um what should they do? You know, where, where do you, where do you start? Um, if you're interested in getting help in learning about, you know, where depression and anxiety comes from and how to get help, how, how would you, how would you advise those people? I'm going to think about that for a minute. It's a big one. Mm-hmm. First things first. I want to encourage people to just get really curious about themselves and to treat themselves with a lot of compassion and care. You know, when we talk about the need for compassion in this world, a lot of that is compassion that we need to apply to ourselves. And when we're first engaging in what I would call a learning journey of trying to figure out sort of what is making us tick and how we're going to fix it, We need to get really curious and we also just need to be really kind to ourselves. And I think everybody's journey ultimately is going to look different, which is a blessing and a curse. It's a good thing and a bad thing. I actually really want to encourage people to believe that they can forge their own path and take their own road and that any one person's path to healing might not look like anybody else's does. So a um, couple thoughts just to sort of expound on this and explain what I mean. I am a really, really big believer in the idea of just learning um, as as something that can orient us on our journey, meaning that I think that so much of what is required in order to heal any kind of mental health experience, any kind of mental health challenge is learning about yourself. There has to be some degree of sort of personal growth and exploration and something that we could call learning. So for whatever a person's, like let's say you've been given a specific diagnosis, maybe even over and over again in your life. Let's imagine it's depression. Maybe you could go and like read some books about how people heal from depression if you can't find high quality therapy where you are. Um, I think that some degree of therapy should always be a part of this. But I think one of the things that I want to encourage people to look into is things like if, if funds are tight, if money is a concern, universal university counseling training centers, I think do not get enough love as 
as sort of a tool for healing and growth because you you'll be working with somebody who's learning but that person is receiving supervision i always want to be mindful when i'm having this kind of conversation that not everybody can afford let's say to to go have a really high quality private practice therapy experience but groups are an option um there's an organization out there called pace i think it's called pace group or something like that where they do uh groups that you can join online um people could check out the work of dr nicola para the holistic psychologist because she does a lot of things that you know enable people to learn and grow on their own she's got something called like the self healers group or something like that um you know, maybe let me know what you think and if you have follow-up questions, but I'm, I'm trying to think through, like, what would I do if I felt like I either couldn't afford kind of high-quality private practice psychotherapy, or if for some reason I just didn't want to do that? Different. Yeah. Um, the self-healers group, I think, that, I mean, that sounded really interesting to me. As soon as you mentioned that, I was just like, oh, this, what a, that's a curious title. I'm going to go... Um, track that down um i think she's but, a good person to follow i'll just sort of plug that really quickly as someone who mm -hmm. thinks like you and i do but has a really big platform um you know she's a nice mm -hmm. voice to follow on instagram i just want to plug our colleagues that i think are doing good work yeah okay uh so you mentioned books you know groups um <laughs> and um okay so you talked talked broadly what about the folks who who do want to invest in it and you know they're in a position where they could what where should they be looking for help Holy and is it, is, it is it is it dependent on the problem that they're having like uh like what what problems might steer you in one direction or another or like how do you like yeah i think sometimes yes sometimes no i think the notion of a therapist that um you know only does one thing Excuse me. I think that some therapists advertise themselves as being experts in something because so many of us are taught that part of how you create a successful business is by standing out in one particular area. But I think that most good, high quality therapists are trained to work with people and not problems, right? Like it's, um, you know, I, I always think about this when people ask me, you know, like what kinds of patients I work with. It's like, you know, right. as long as somebody is capable of talking about their feelings and connecting dots, yeah. it doesn't really matter what the presenting issue is. It could be anything. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that's just true of our mental health experiences in general is that, you know, even all of the stuff in the DSM, it's like largely made up, you know, people you vote on that stuff in closed door meetings. It's we've made these kind of fake buckets, you know, to sort of put our problems into. I think most people are just struggling more generally than they are specifically. But, okay. uh, but yeah, you know, I'm a really big believer in getting a high quality referral in any way that you can. So for example, if you know someone who goes to a therapist and they like <laughs> that therapist, as long as it's not a super close relationship, as long as it's not, you know, your spouse, um, perhaps you could talk to that person, talk to your friend and see if you can get that person's information. 
Mm-hmm. Um, here in California, we have a very specific kind of therapy mashing service called, uh, it's called COA and the URL is joincoa.com. It was created by a colleague of mine named Emily Ann Halt. That is, um, it actually helps to match people with, with their therapists. I think it only exists in California, maybe New York state. Um, I, people can use something like psychology today. They should just know that the therapists are not vetted by psychology today. So you really have to use your own gut. And this is something that I believe really strongly is true, no matter what. The only thing that really matters in terms of choosing a therapist is that you pick someone that you like, that you know you should be able to have some kind of introductory phone call or meeting that enables you to get a sense of a person. Or let's say you go to one whole session, you just see how it feels. If you feel like that person is listening to you, expressing curiosity, treating you with respect, if you feel like you can um, imagine opening up to them or you start opening up to them and you feel like that person is a is a trustworthy, empathic listener, that is going to bear more significant weight to me than whether you know somebody else that likes their therapist because you mm-hmm. could go to the same person and just not get the same vibe there there is a certain amount of choosing a therapist that's a little bit like dating and i i don't i know that's kind of a crass metaphor to use but it's it's all about what we call rightness of fit that's the technical term for it it's just like do you jam with the person or not do you feel like they get you or not and i really want to encourage people to trust their guts because i think one of the things that's really broken about this entire system whether it's going to a doctor and being put on an antidepressant or, you know, just this whole problem with what I would call the mental health industrial complex is that people are not encouraged to trust themselves. We live in a world of kind of top down authority figures, whether it's your parents or the government, people are often not, uh, it's not recommended that people trust themselves. And I think that when it comes to, sort of engaging in the journey of healing your own mental health, you have to, you have to learn how to get connected with your own gut so that you can trust it because no one is ever going to be a higher authority on you than you. Any, what about like red flags? Is there anything that, that, you know, when people are looking for, they should be, they should be aware of? Yes. Um, If, you know, there's so many classic ones of like the therapist starts talking all about themselves or they say something to you that makes you feel disrespected or sort of distinctly misunderstood. Um, If they talk to you like they have all of the answers and you don't, um, I think a lot of it is honestly sort of a vibe and a gut level check okay well i um you've covered all of my questions you've answered them really well and i've loved the discussion um what haven't i brought up with you uh that you'd like to share with our audience uh if if anything Mm. i think it's possible that i can only think of one thing but it's jumping straight to the top of my mind so i'm gonna say it i think There is a force that exists in our culture right now that is very destructive 
and it is our smartphones and tablets and devices. And the thing that makes it destructive is that people can sometimes be not super mindful of the impact that it's having on their human relationships in terms of how they use their devices. So, for example, people that give iPhones and tablets to their kids to sort of pacify and babysit their children, especially when those children are really young, um, has some really disturbing consequences to it. And just to paint a picture of the kind of thing that I'm talking about, because I'm not saying that a kid should like never look at a tablet, but there are a lot of people that I know will do things like give their kids, you know, an iPad or something in a restaurant. Um, or I once saw a kid a sort of at the hair salon with his head in the bowl with like with the uh, looking up at the iPad. So the, while the person was washing his hair, he was like looking at a screen. And I think that a lot of people think, you know, whatever is going to help my kid get through this moment is what we need most right now. And unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence to point to the idea that what I'm saying is true. We are starting to witness long-term consequences of children in those developing years not learning how to um, manage their boredom and frustration. You know, there are certain mental muscles that get built when we are forced to feel bored for a little bit, for a little while, or forced to feel frustrated. You know, when you're a little kid sitting at a restaurant and you're surrounded by adults and you're bored, you learn how to deal with your boredom. And we're seeing in a lot of today's kind of pre-teens, a lot of emotional dysregulation because ever since those kids were toddlers, they people were using devices to just sort of pacify and babysit them. So I want to make it clear that I'm talking about the more extreme edges of this. It's not you know, depending on how old a kid is and that kind of thing, it's not like there's no amount of digital technology that's acceptable. But going back to what I was saying before about attunement and relating and learning how you uh, sort of exist in the world by the way that you relate to another person, I think there's a lot that's going wrong with technology. And one more example (laughs) that I will use that is pretty heartbreaking is that, um, A lot of women who breastfeed are also scrolling on their phones while they're breastfeeding because they're not finding it to be very stimulating. And that is extremely destructive to the developing mind of an infant or like early stage toddler. So Mm -hmm. that's my little PSA that I want to leave everybody with is to really start paying attention to your relationships. And that includes your relationship with technology. You got to got to limit that, please. I love it. Dr. Leslie, where can people find you? They can find me at lesliecar.com or at Dr. Leslie Carr on Instagram. And they can find the podcast, The Nature of Nurture, in any podcast app. Or uh, when we start releasing season four, probably late February, they can find me on YouTube backslash at The Nature of Nurture. Uh, and if anybody gets lost, just come to lesliecar.com. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was absolutely my pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittDuringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.